13 again. Revelation chapter 13. We've been studying through the book of Revelation since 1976, I think. <laughs> Seems like that. I hope you've been studying through Revelation or the Bible since 1976 if you were alive then. But um, we've been kind of stuck here in Revelation 13 for several weeks. Not stuck necessarily, we've just been looking in depth at some of the things the Bible has to teach us about the Antichrist. We're going to continue that today, and so we're going to jump back and kind of launch from where we left off last week and read verses 1 through 10 again, just to remind ourselves where we are and the content of God's Word that we're looking at here. So Revelation chapter 13, starting at verse 1, we're going to read down again through verse 10. The Bible says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Our Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you even for these passages that talk about the end times, the, the coming tribulation period, Lord. We know that if we are true believers, you promise that you will take us out before that torment comes. So we won't have to go through it. But, Lord, it's good for us to learn it because there's principles that are applicable to us today. And so teach us through your spirit today. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive that which you have for us. And Lord, use me as your mouthpiece, as your instrument today to speak truth. Just fill me with your spirit now. Give me strength, give me wisdom, give me the words to say so that we might hear from you and be challenged by our God. And we thank you for what you're going to accomplish now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get back to Revelation 13, let me just quickly go over what we've covered so far. We've been given a glimpse into who and what the Antichrist is going to be in the tribulation period here from the beginning of Revelation 13. And in the first few verses, we know that he is going to rise up out of ten kingdoms that the world will be divided into at the end time during the tribulation period. This kingdom, which will exist, which will, he will eventually reign over, um, is reminiscent or a resurrection, if you will, of the Roman Empire that in substance is extinct but in essence still exists. And we've talked about that. But it's going to be the substance of the new world order. Now you've probably heard those words and that's what the kingdom of the Antichrist will be, a new world order. And we already see the beginnings of that today. But at the midpoint of this tribulation period that we've been studying, the Antichrist will receive a mortal wound. We saw that last week. He will be killed. And then he will come back to life as what the Bible calls a lying wonder that will cause the nations to be in awe and worship him. And we read this morning from chapter 13 how he will die. And then the nations will see him alive again. And that will cause them to worship him. So their worship will be of the Antichrist, not of the true God. 
And then this Antichrist is empowered by Satan. That's very clear in chapter 13. His power comes from Satan, and through that power that's given by Satan to him, he will draw the world to himself in a counterfeit of the way that Christ draws sinners to repentance in himself. And so you see, as you study the Antichrist, all these little things about him that have some kind of reflection on something about Christ. He is the counterfeit. That's why they call him the Antichrist. Satan wants to distract people from God, and he does it by making things or doing things or bringing things into our lives that have a little bit of God in them, but they lead us away from the truth in the end. That's the purpose of the Antichrist, to lead people away from God. And so as we look at the next several verses today, we're going to see more about the foundational spirit of the Antichrist, how it's going to influence all the people of the earth to follow him. He's already amazed them with the supernatural resurrection. He has their wonder. He has their worship. And now we're going to see what he does in response to that in his actions. And so we go down to verse 5. We're going to start there this morning. And it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. The words great things, if you have a different version, it may, may say arrogant words. Okay, this is pride being expressed by the Antichrist, absolute pride. There never has been, there never will be another person this proud and arrogant on the earth. And as the tool of Satan, we understand that because Satan is defined by pride. That's what caused him to sin in the first place. That's what causes all sin, is a a foundation of pride that overrules God and takes God's place in the life. And so Satan and the Antichrist are going to be defined by this pride. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, it says this about the Antichrist arrogance, and having a mouth speaking great things, same words. Okay, that we see here are very similar words that we see here in Revelation 13. Having a mouth speaking great things. And it means arrogant words. Above God. Setting himself above God. That's what this means. The ESV probably says a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, we talk about boasting, you know, and we associate that with somebody who's just full of themselves, who's full of pride. They just want to talk about themselves. Okay, that's really the Antichrist, but it's not just boasting that we see. In Daniel chapter 11, it describes him this way, in verse 36, The king shall do according to his will, that's the Antichrist, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. So the Antichrist literally will be echoing on earth the very sentiments that Satan uttered in heaven that got him ejected from his position in heaven. I will set myself above the Most High. Those are the words of Satan. And that is the words of the Antichrist as well. It says he sets himself above all men and above all gods, including the Almighty God, the true God. And in setting himself above all others, including God Almighty... <clears throat> the Antichrist then becomes guilty of blasphemy. And we've read that. It's been said two or three times already. In verse 1, it talks about upon his head the name of blasphemy. When you get to verse, um, is this echoing too much? I'm going to stand back a little bit. Um, in verse 5, it says he speaks great things and blasphemies. In verse 6, it says he opens his mouth and blasphemy against God. So this is what defines the Antichrist. Because this is what defines Satan who gives him his power. It is blasphemy against God, lifting oneself above God, and in doing so, we degrade God himself. We put him out of his rightful place. So that's what defines him. He speaks blasphemous words out of his pride. Now, the power to carry out this blasphemy is given to him for 42 months, it says. Okay, If you look again at verse 5, and power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. 
Now, if you use the Jewish calendar, that equates to three and a half years, okay? In our calendar, it's three and a half years. Jews, or the Jewish calendar uses a 30-day month. So when you see the number of days in Daniel, it corresponds to three and a half years, 42 months. But the words I want you to look at are not so much the time period. We know that's the second half of the tribulation that he's given this power. But the words I want you to focus on is this. He is given power to do this. He is given power to blaspheme God. Now, where does all power ultimately reside? With God in heaven. God is the God of all power, all authority. And anybody that has any power or authority, it has been given to them from God. Now, this says that his power is given to him from Satan. But who gave Satan his power? God did. So ultimately, when you read these verses, it is saying that God himself empowers the Antichrist to blaspheme God's name. And we go, that makes no sense at all. Why would God do that? Because it's part of his plan. Because he uses the sinfulness of this blasphemy of the Antichrist to to fulfill his plan. To exert exert, uh, judgment on the earth. Okay? Now, it's not that God's no longer in control of the situation. God's still in control. He still holds all power. It is that God, being in control and with all of his power still intact, he's removed his hand from restricting Satan and from restricting the Antichrist and basically says, okay, I'm letting you have free reign. I'm empowering you to do whatever you're going to do, and God will use that to accomplish his purpose. Now, again, it doesn't make sense to us. How can God use blasphemy against him to actually accomplish his purpose? I can't explain that. Okay? But God, it doesn't need to be explained. That is God's purpose. It is to prove his righteousness and judgment. It is to prove that glory belongs to God. That he is just in all he does. And that the, the end of the Antichrist and of Satan are well deserved. But God allows this to happen. He gives Satan through the Antichrist. Or I'm sorry, he gives the Antichrist through Satan the power literally to blaspheme God's name. And then look at what comes out of this power in verses 6 and 7. He says, and he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So here's the result of the power that's given to the Antichrist through Satan. And I'm going to break these down. First, we have the blasphemies against God, God's temple, and God's people. Second, we have the war against the saints And I want you to pay attention to the words, and to overcome them, because that's going to be important. And then thirdly, at the end of verse 7, he has given total authority over all people and nations and tongues on the earth so that they worship him. That is what God allows him to do. That is what God gives him power to achieve. And it might, in our minds, seem absolutely contradictory to what God wants, because God wants all the glory to go to him. And here it seems he gives the Antichrist the power to give all glory to the Antichrist and to Satan. And yet God's still in control. And we have to accept that because that's what the Bible says. So first he gives him power to blaspheme God. To blaspheme is to speak with contempt about someone or to be defiantly irreverent. Okay? To Ignore, not just ignore, to deny not just God's existence, but his character, his power, his authority. Outright. Now, Romans chapter 1 tells us very clearly that no one actually believes that there is no God. Okay, there's a sufficient evidence all around us to prove that God exists. And so it comes down to the end of chapter 1, and it says, so they are without excuse. God has given us everything we need to realize that there is a God, that he is all-powerful, that we had to come from somewhere. So we're without excuse. And so to ultimately say, no, God has no power, God has no authority, God doesn't do all that's best, 
That is blasphemy. Because we deny the character of God, the power and authority of God. And that's what Satan does. He wants to degrade God. He wants to belittle God. And that is his effort in the world to distract people from God, is to make God seem not good, not all-powerful, not all-wise, so that we bring God down to the level of a person, and then we start to refer him to him as things like, well, the old man upstairs. Okay, that is blasphemy. Because that degrades God to a human level. And God is so far above humans, we can't even explain it. So blasphemy is a verbal or written reproach of God's name, his character, his work, or his attributes. Now, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, this was a serious crime when God gave Israel the law. In Leviticus chapter 24, there's an example of a man who blasphemed the name of God. He degraded God. And somehow, it doesn't say the the details of it, but it just says he blasphemed the name of God. And then it says, here's what the penalty was in verses 14 through 16 in Leviticus 24. Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp. Take him outside the camp. Let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger. And he that is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So this is a serious crime. In fact, this is what the Pharisees accused Jesus of. By calling himself the Son of God, they said that was blasphemy. Because they didn't believe that he, as a person, could actually represent or be Yahweh, Jehovah, in person. And so they accused him of blasphemy. In Isaiah chapter 36, we read the story of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. After he had conquered the northern kingdom, he was coming against the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah went to God in prayer. In his prayer, he reminds God, God doesn't need to be reminded, but Hezekiah reminds God of the blasphemy that Sennacherib had pronounced, basically degrading the God of Israel. And Sennacherib had sent messengers with this message and said, basically, I want you to understand that I am the ruler ruler of the world. Look at all the nations I have conquered. Look at all the battles I have won, and no one has been able to defeat me. And you think your little God can help you. That is blasphemy. And that's what Hezekiah prayed. And in the morning, if you know the story, the servants of Israel went out and found 185,000 soldiers dead because God killed them all. Blasphemy is a serious crime. Now, I already mentioned the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy, but actually Jesus also condemned them for blasphemy. And it was that conversation, actually, from which his discourse on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit comes. Now, there's a big, I think, question mark in many people's minds. What is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus said this is the only unpardonable sin. But we have to look at it from God's perspective. And I want you to understand, I'm going to take two minutes to try to explain it to you. Okay, this is the ultimate form of blasphemy. Jesus actually said all other forms of blasphemy can be forgiven except this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They blasphemed, the Pharisees blasphemed Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I can forgive that. They blasphemed God the Father. And Jesus said, that can be forgiven. But when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's an unpardonable offense. That kind of blasphemy is defined as denying the testimony of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is God. That's what the Pharisees did. It is speaking against the testimony and work of the Holy Spirit that denying that it is from God and claiming that it is something else. Remember, the Pharisees actually accused Jesus of doing the works of Satan. And that's when Jesus responded. He said, a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. You say it's Satan, but I'm working against Satan. How can that be? Okay, But they blasphemed the Holy Spirit in attributing the power and testimony and work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to something other than God. Now, when you do that, basically, you set yourself 
absolutely against God and against everything he has revealed. You set your heart against God. Even though we're without excuse, in in Romans chapter 1, God says at some point, he turns people over to a reprobate mind. He lets them believe the lie. Now, is it that God will not pardon that sin if they come to him in repentance? That's not the point. What Jesus was trying to say is that when you get to that point where you absolutely deny the fact of Jesus' deity, you deny the work of the Holy Spirit, that he doesn't do what the Bible says he does, that it's actually the work of something else. You can call it magic, you can call it Satan, you can attribute it to the forces of nature, but when you absolutely shut yourself down to the possibility that this is the Holy Spirit exhibiting his work and testifying to the deity of Jesus Christ, you have turned yourself over to a reprobate mind and you will never turn back. That's why it's unpardonable, because you'll never repent. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. You've gotten to this point where you're so hardened in your mind, you've decided that this cannot be, no matter what evidence you see, that you've become absolutely against God, even though they say they were for God. And so that's what this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Now, that's the kind of blasphemy that we see here with the Antichrist absolutely setting himself against God, claiming that it's his power, explaining away all of the evidence of God in the universe and in, human, in, in working in humankind. Okay? And I, we haven't gotten there yet, so I don't know exactly what he's going to say. But in verse 4, it says he receives his power from Satan. But God is empowering him literally to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense to us. But God is doing this. Now, a note I want to make here, okay? That point that we read here in Revelation 13 should answer a big question about free will, okay? There's a big debate, all right? Has God predestined us? Are we saved apart from anything that is of us, anything that we submit to, anything that is our choice, okay? Is is everything we do controlled by God? Are we just robots and God makes us do everything that happens, okay? I don't believe that's what sovereignty is. In fact, I've read commentators, some Reformed commentators, that believe everything we do is ordained, controlled, empowered, authored by God. And I'm going to give you a, a very... Extreme example, but this is where people go with this thought. The man was overweight. He was walking down the street, and he's a proponent of God's authority, God's sovereignty in our lives, and he believes God controls, God causes everything that happens. And so he's walking down the street. He knows he's overweight, and he goes by Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop, and he said, I could not help it. The Holy Spirit turned my shoulders and pushed me through the door, and I walked up to the counter, and the Holy Spirit squeezed my cheeks together and made me say, pralines and cream, please. Now, I believe that is border on blasphemy. Because God does not make us robots, okay? God does not cause the blasphemy, even though he's empowered it. This is the free choice of this Antichrist who has submitted himself to the power of Satan. And so by his own choice, he blasphemes God. The power comes from God, but it's his choice how to use it. Now look at what he blasphemes. It says he blasphemes against God, but also against his tabernacle and his people. He will blaspheme the name of God the summation of all that God is. He will defame and deride everything about God, his holiness, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his love. Everything about God, he's going to put in a negative context and mock to draw people away from who God truly is. Now, I've known people like this in my life where you try to read scripture to them and all they do is mock. Oh, that's a bunch of garbage. I don't want to hear about that stuff. My father worked with a woman. He tried to talk to her many times about the Lord. In fact, she was interested. She asked questions about the Bible and about religion. 
And she seemed to get more and more antagonistic until one conversation my dad remembers extremely well. He said, we were standing at the water cooler on break, and we were talking about the Lord. And I can't remember what my dad said about Jesus Christ. And the lady took a step back, and she put her hands up like this, and she said, I reject your Jesus, like that. And then he said, physically, he could see her shudder, and it was like film came over her eyes. And she walked away, and she never asked another question about God again. Now, I don't know if that was at that moment that God turned her over to a reprobate mind, but it can happen. Okay, that's the state of this Antichrist, an absolute reprobate mind, and he defames God and everything about him, makes fun of it. Have you met people like this? They can't accept God as he is. They criticize his mercy and grace. How can God let sin just abound? How can God let sin happen? It happens in the church. How can God let Christians sin and hurt each other and do things that are bad? They criticize his mercy, his grace, his holiness. They make fun not only of the people that try to live that way, but also of the God who personifies those traits that he's called us to. Okay? These people can't accept what the Bible says about God. And they can't accept what it says about why God does what he does. They also can't accept God's ways for believers because God's truth doesn't make sense to them. Now, there's a big lesson here in forgiveness because forgiveness doesn't make any sense to us at all, right? Someone hurts me, what's my natural response? Get back at them. This morning, I talked about 9-11, the attacks of the terrorists on on the Twin Towers, on the Pentagon, the plane crash in Pennsylvania. Okay, that was perpetuated by evil men. And so what should, I, what should be our response? Let's go smash them, right? Well, that's the human response, yes. But do we really want to send people to hell without a knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is that our end goal? That's not our prerogative. That's God's. It's left in his court. His judgment upon those people comes from him. Now, he will use governments to carry out judgment, but it's not upon us as individuals to say, we're going to smash them. That's why I reminded you of that page of the Bible that was fused on that piece of steel from the World Trade Center. I don't think that's a coincidence that the very message in the midst of that rubble said, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That's the words of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness doesn't make sense to us as human beings. But that's what reflects God's character because of his mercy and his grace. The Antichrist will mock that, just like other people will mock it. It doesn't make sense to them. So they belittle God. They defame God. So they mock the name of God. They also mock his tabernacle. The word tabernacle here is representative of the place where God dwells. Where does God dwell? Right now, God the Father dwells in heaven with his Son. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In us. Right? In us. We are the tabernacle. But when we get to this point in history, we won't be here. Where will we be? In heaven, with God, where he dwells. So this is blasphemy against heaven. Blasphemy against his people, who are the tabernacle of God. Now, I can only imagine what the Antichrist is going to say about the rapture, to try to get people to believe the lie. Okay, I think we're being prepared already with all of the movies and all of the propaganda about UFOs and aliens and life in outer space. I think everybody's being set up for when the rapture happens, that's going to be the big excuse. See, I told you they were aliens, and now they took millions of people. That's why they're gone. Forget about God. Forget about the Bible and the rapture. It was aliens. We know that. I don't know if that's going to be the argument, but I can see that that would be used that way. So he blasphemes the place where God dwells in heaven. Let me stop there for just a second because, again, I've met people, even some people who call themselves Christians. And think about this. Have you heard this from people? Who wants to go to heaven? A place made of gold where gold is of no value. A place where you sit around and sing hymns and play a harp all the time. That's pretty boring. 
They have no idea. But doesn't that belittle our future home? The dwelling place of God? And really, it has nothing to do with the streets made of gold. I don't think we're even going to pay attention to that. Because Jesus Christ will be there in person. That's going to be the attention getter. But he blasphemes the tabernacle. He blasphemes the people of God. And in blaspheming God's people and his temple, heaven and God himself, he will draw people away from God. How do you get somebody to think badly about somebody else? You criticize them, right? Oh, look at that guy. You know, he never takes a bath. He wears clothes from last year. He never brushes his teeth. Yeah, who wants to be around him? And then that plants a seed in people. And I think that's the tactics that the Antichrist is going to use. I mean, it's already happening in the world today. All right, they're planting seeds to draw people away from God. The Antichrist is going to be the antithesis of that. He draws people away from the God. And he's proving his point. Okay, remember, he's blaspheming the people of God. Now, the church is gone, but there's still believers on earth. There's still Israel, Jews, many Jews, probably millions of Jews that will still be on the earth during the tribulation period. And so those are his targets. He's going to blaspheme them. But if you go into verse 7, look at what his next action is. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. I'm going to prove to you people that all of these weaklings and idiots that I'm talking about are nothing but weaklings and idiots. We're just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so he has to prove his point that all these people are idiots by getting rid of them. He makes war against the saints. Satan will take his vengeance through the Antichrist upon those who follow God. Why? To exalt himself. That's the first reason. Number two, to get rid of any influence that would draw people away from him and to God. So he has to destroy him. Daniel 7 predicts this war against the saints. In verse 25 it says, He shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That's an intense phrase right there. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Talk about extreme long-suffering and patience that's going to be needed to get through this. We have no idea. You know, we get impatient when somebody cuts us off in traffic. We wouldn't survive. But it says he shall wear his, the saints out and think to change times and laws. And talking about the saints, they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Three and a half years. So he literally will be able to overcome. Remember that phrase? Overcome. Not just make war against the saints, but overcome them. Destroy them. Kill them. The followers of Christ will be hunted It's not just that this war is a war of, well, you know, if I happen to come across him, let's get rid of him. No, he intentionally hunts down people who follow God. That's the state that it's going to be in in the the time of the Antichrist, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Believe me, when he gets them, he'll kill them. We know that. The Bible says that. Remember the martyrs under the altar in the sixth seal or the fifth seal in chapter six? Many of them are probably people that the Antichrist kills. Now, I want you to think it's not going to be an easy execution. It's not going to be okay, line up against the wall, boom, you're gone. Think about the most evil rulers we've ever had in this world through history. They don't make it easy. If you go back to the Roman Empire, just look at how Nero, Caligula, some of those most evil emperors of Rome treated Christians. They didn't just kill them. They tortured them. They would skin them alive and put them on poles and light them on fire while they were still alive. And I don't mean to be gross. The Antichrist is going to be worse. Okay? This is how evil we're, we're talking about. This is how much evil is going to be in him and in the world at that time. And that's what he's going to do to Christians. Let me just say this. There will not be marginal, soft Christians in the tribulation. You will be all in for God to the death. 
or you will deny Christ to preserve your life. Now, I asked the question to myself, and we probably all should do this. If I were in that situation, what would my response be? Would I have strong enough faith in God to not deny him, to not turn away from him if my life was threatened, if I was threatened with extreme torture and pain, would I still be faithful to Jesus Christ? Today, Christianity in the West especially is soft. We have very little persecution and very little pushback compared to the time when John was writing this. Then, even then, we're not talking about the tribulation period, we're talking about John's day. Even then, if you were a Christian... You basically were risking your life. That's why they baptized people, okay? It was a public testimony that no matter what happens to me, I identify myself with Jesus Christ. And by being baptized publicly, you were saying to people, I am Christ. And if you're going to turn me into the authorities and that leads to my death, so be it. I will follow Christ to the death. We don't have that attitude anymore. Very few people are like that. Every single one of the apostles, except John, were killed. They were martyred. They had that faith. And it's that kind of Christian that this passage is talking about, the saints, those who follow Jesus Christ, those who are faithful to him no matter what. This is not a faith of convenience that we're talking about here. This is not a faith of comfort. This is an absolute commitment, a sacrifice, a total surrender to God of my life. Because it may cost you your life. And he says, these are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, he doesn't say that specifically. He says, it's everybody else. Those who don't follow, those who are not saints, those are the ones whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those people in the tribulation who will take the mark of the beast to save their lives... They're not saved. There's no true life there. These are the ones that Jesus said in the parable of the sower. They're the good ground. They receive the seed. They bring forth fruit. If we can't be faithful in our faith to stand up in the face of persecution and still proclaim the name of Jesus and have the testimony of him in our life, then there's no fruit. We can't manufacture good works and say, hey, here's fruit. It's like hanging fake ornaments on a Christmas tree and then saying, oh, look, this is the real thing. If it's not real, it doesn't count. Real Christians don't let persecution and pressure change their faithfulness. They don't come to church and serve Christ only when it's convenient or safe. They're committed to living for Christ and being faithful no matter what danger is at hand, no matter what it may cost them. That's the saints that Jesus talks about here. But for those who are fair-weather Christians only, who wither and fall back as soon as it gets hard, that's not real life. That's what Jesus said. Remember the thorny ground? The cares of the world, they come up, they choke out the plant, and there's no life in it. The stony ground, when the sun comes up and things get hot and hard, the plant withers because it has no root. There's no life. It's only people who have the fruit of God's spirit in their life. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, Jesus said this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, talking about the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? And in thy name have we not done many wonderful works? That word there means miracles, by the way. Wonderful works, okay? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You can't play Christianity. You can't fake it. It's either real faith committed absolutely to God, or it's not. There's no in-between. And in times like the tribulation... It separates the sheep from the goats. The real believers 
will be true, regardless of what it costs them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye also are saved, talking about the gospel, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. See, there's a lot of Christians, I believe, today that call themselves Christians, but fit this category of believing in vain. What is believing in vain? The word vanity is used immensely in the book of Ecclesiastes. The wisest man in the world wrote that book. Solomon, remember, he experienced everything there was to experience. He had all the pleasures, all the money, all the gold, all the women, all of everything that could be experienced in life. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, basically his summary is this. It's all vanity. If you want God and salvation for your prosperity, for you to have a better life, for you to be safe in your life, for you to get the blessings without responsibility, that's vain faith. And Jesus says that's not real Christians. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That's not talking about somebody losing their salvation. It's talking about someone who's pretended their whole lives. But it's not real. Hebrews chapter 10 The just shall live by faith. That means the just shall continue to be faithful. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. When we talk about Christianity, it's a serious thing. As we look at what's going to happen in the tribulation period under the blasphemy, under the war against the saints of the Antichrist, what if it were us? Would you survive that test. Hebrews 10:39 finishes this way, we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. It doesn't say to the saving of our body. It doesn't say to the saving of our money or possessions. It says to the saving of our soul. That's the only thing that matters. So here's the big question. How can a God who's perfectly righteous and good allow such evil in the world? How can he allow such bad things to happen to his people? Now, here we have a situation that's extreme in that question because it's not only that God allows it, but he actually empowers the Antichrist to do these things. Whoa. That doesn't make sense. Why would God allow Satan the ability and the power to kill his, his believers, God's followers. Isn't God supposed to protect us? We sang this morning, a mighty fortress is our God, right? We read this morning, nothing can take us out of the love of Christ. Does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us in this world? That we will never be hurt? That we will not die for Christ's name? No, because God's concerned about our soul more than he does our body. Now, he will provide for our bodies, but he does not promise us that our body will be safe. In fact, if you want a safe God, choose the Antichrist. He promises safety. God promises safety of the soul. He will provide our needs. He will give us everything that we need. He will protect us from the enemy, but our body is not untouchable. Remember Job? And if you're more concerned about your body than you are about your soul, vain faith. But why does God allow it? Why did God allow so-called religious people to murder his son, Jesus Christ? Because it's part of his plan. It's all part of God's plan. Not that God causes suffering. That's our fault for choosing sin. Suffering is the result of our sin, and generally sin in the world. That's what causes suffering, not God. And it's not God's fault that evil is allowed to prosper and rise up against his people. He didn't cause it, but he does allow it. And in this case, he empowers it to serve his purpose, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Sin exists because we chose sin over God. That's the human nature. That's what the Bible teaches us. 
For all have sinned and come short of glorifying God. But even though the existence of sin is not God's fault, it is not out of his control. God uses even sin to accomplish his purpose. Jesus Christ on the cross, was that not a sin? And yet that was the greatest accomplishment of God in the redemption of human history, in the redemption of human mankind. That's his sovereignty. God can actually use sin. That's where we come back to Romans 8.28. We read that this morning in our responsive reading. We know that all things work together for good, even the ones we don't understand, even the ones that don't fit our picture of what God should be doing, even the ones that don't bring us good. We know. Why? Because God says so. That's the way he is. He is a good God. This morning you sang, you are always good. Did you mean it? If you really didn't mean it, if you think God is not as always good, then you lied. Think about that. In praising God, you lied. Do you know that all things work together for good? And the verse goes on, to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Here's the problem. God doesn't work everything to good for our purpose. That's why we get upset with God. Because he didn't do what I wanted. He didn't fulfill my expectations. And so I can't see any good. All I see is the bad. Because it doesn't fit my model of what life should be. When we know that all things work together for good, it's for his purpose. And God's purpose is not ours. God has a bigger plan. God has a bigger overall picture. Mostly all we're concerned about is this guy, right? Who is God concerned about? Everyone. I'm going to tell you, share an example, and I've got to finish up quickly, but when I lost my job in New Hampshire years ago, I had a, a wonderful job, by the way. I loved it. Um, I don't mean to make anybody jealous, but I had three weeks of paid vacation. We also got another week for Christmas. We also got another week for the 4th of July, and we got to take our birthday off as a paid holiday. Okay? Now, that was just some of the benefits, but I loved my job. It was a great job. It was a great company to work for. But I sat down with my supervisor in December of 2006, and he went over my job review, and he gave me all high marks, excellent, 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 excellent. We got all done with that, and he turned to me, and he said, now I have to say this, as good as you've done, we're eliminating your position, so you no longer have a job here. And I was like, that's a joke, right? He said, no. That was on December 13th, Friday all things right before Christmas and I panicked and I thought this can't be right okay we have a great church I have a great job here some okay okay God all right maybe I'm not understanding things all right so what I need to do is scramble around and try to find another position in the company that I can fit into and that's what I did for the next couple of weeks I went to all the department heads which I knew personally showed them my reports. They knew my work. I'd worked for many of them in, in the, the last five years preceding that. And basically they said, sorry, there's, there's nowhere to put you. So I had to come to the conclusion, okay, God, you don't want me to work here. So I started calling all of the clients that I'd worked with for those five years and saying, hey, you know me. I've worked with you for five years. Do you have a position for me? And they all said, no, sorry. Wish we could help you. And so I started thinking, okay, God, what in the world is going on? How could this be good? Now, if God hadn't done that, I would never have become a pastor planting a church in Michigan because it was that event that freed me from that job. And right after that, God called me to Michigan to start the church there. And after 12 years there, God called me here. See, when you look back, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I can look back and go, wow, yeah, I can see the good God was working out of all that, not just for me. For you, for the people in Michigan that I was able to minister to. 
for everyone that I've been able to help in my ministry as a pastor, but that not, would not have happened if I had not been fired from that job in New Hampshire. God works all things together for good, for his purpose, not mine. So God knows what he's doing. We don't. We have to accept that. Why does God allow all this? Why is God going to allow such evil in the tribulation? Why will God allow the Antichrist to literally kill and overcome the saints of Christ? Because it's for his purpose, to glorify himself. So even the killing of people in the tribulation period is part of God's plan. I'm going to have to stop there because of time, but we need to hold on to that thought. God is always good. No matter what we see around us, and on the anniversary of 9-11, God is always good. And if we look at life through that lens, instead of complaining about our circumstances, more and more we'll start to see what God is trying to do and trying to teach us in our lives. And then we will be conformed to his will, as the Bible says. Because we'll get on board with God's plan and stop living to try to accomplish our own plan. God is always good. If you forget everything else, don't forget that. Okay? God is always good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your blessings to us. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we are tested day by day, that we will pass that test of faithfulness to you, not in our own strength, but relying on your Holy Spirit, who is in us, who gives us everything we need to be faithful to live the way that you've called us to live, to be light and salt to the world who's hostile toward Christianity and God. And so, Lord, give us strength through your Spirit. Help us to see all around the things that happen to us and around us that it is part of your plan in the big picture. And even though we don't understand, you will work things out for your good, for your purpose, to accomplish your plan. So help us to love you. Help us not to doubt you, to criticize the things that you're doing, to question why, but just to trust you completely. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you saved us, that you are in control of our lives, and that you promised us an eternal home. Keep us until that time as you promised us. Help us to hold on to that promise and to know that you are always good in every circumstance of life. Thank you again for your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 297, 297, God will take care of you, by the way that's an absolute